CoinRow Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinRow Plus at CoinRowPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinRow Podcast with your host, Jeff Stark. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for folks. And Larry Jewett. And learning has been such a tremendous amount of this journey. The Coin World Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of the Coin World Podcast. I'm Jeff Stark. Didn't we just do one of these? I thought we just finished one of these. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I'm Larry Jewett. Well, you know, with the, the joyful thing is we get to do this like every week and there's interviews and there's planning sessions and there's all sorts of stuff related to this. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I just looked out the window and there's a kid on my lawn. I just I, I just, you know, this is just not a, off to a good start here. You know, just don't. don't yeah, pretty much. That's it. I mean, that's that's what set me off. I need to focus. I need to focus here. You folks deserve the very best that we could offer in this award-winning podcast. And I just realized we're probably only award-winning because of you. So, I mean, I just need to, I need to chill and just listen for a while. Well, hey, no, we we thank all the listeners for uh, hanging in there with us. This is fun to do. We get uh, the privilege to do this every week. And uh, this week we have an interview with David Crenshaw of the National Coin and Bullion Association, I believe, NCBA. Uh, some folks might remember it or know it as ICTA, the Industry Council for Tangible Assets. But it's been around 40 years, and uh, they are doing all sorts of important work to push the hobby forward, make business easier for dealers and collectors alike. So you want to hang on for that interview in just a bit. And I think one of the things, I mean, the change from the name of the ICTA to the NCBA and uh, kind of gives the idea that it is a little broader than I originally thought. I know I was uh, guilty of preconception of what the organization was all about. And now once I did a little more research into it, then I started to realize that. And that's why kind of we did some of the research for you with our interview with David Crenshaw here today and understand the importance of knowing how you can be involved and what you can be involved with and what kind of an impact it's going to have on you. And you'll learn a lot more about that right now. But, you know, just the idea that a lot of times when we talk about, we talk about how collectors can be totally different and it takes all of us to kind of unify and kind of make it because we all have a shared passion for what we're doing here. And one of the things we talk about sometimes in our podcast is the acquisitions that we make. And I'm telling you, here on some of these lately, I've been able to acquire some items that I didn't even know existed. And it's been fun. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I'm, I'm really, and I'll be talking more about this after I make a trip back home, but I was able to find something that had a significant connection to my family's history and my father's employment. And that was something I never thought I would ever see again. And I'm going to be uh, visiting with him in a couple of weeks. I'm hoping to take it to him. I'm not going to let him keep it, though. I mean, just this is for me. But you know. <laughs> that's I, I call myself. You call myself the quirky collector. Now I'm calling myself the selfish collector. So no, you, there has to be a little bit of selfish aspect. You you want to find the the deal before somebody else that is looking for that item finds it. I mean, 
you know, as long as you're, you share your knowledge in, you know, in various ways like here and, and in the magazine. And so I, I wouldn't say that's too selfish at all. Uh, I did it again, though. I, I bought another Buffalo nickel that had from his birth year. So I'll, since I have two of those, I'll let him have one. So, well, you, you have to, uh, you have to share and you only need one unless, of course, you've got different net marks. So did you, did you look at that? No, they're both these. So um, it's just, and they're pretty similar in grade. So obviously the idea is to eventually upgrade these. And I, I look at this a lot of it. I mean, a lot of times they say buy the, the, the best grade that you can afford and, you know, I keep coming back to Colonel Howard's plan. How do you have to should have a plan here? And my plan is to get something using, let's just use a 35D Buffalo nickel as an example. I get uh, a, a single 35D Buffalo nickel and it's pretty decent shape. Maybe very good, you know, maybe good, maybe very good. I don't know. That's decent for me. And then someday I'm going to move up into the AU grades, but today's not that day, but I still have an example of that coin that I can look at. And I get a lot of satisfaction out of going back and seeing the things that I already have. And I think there's a lot of folks that do that. None of my stuff needs to be in a safe deposit box or needs to be locked away. It's it's stuff for me to enjoy. It's like reading, you know, reading, you read what you like, you collect what you like, that type of thing. So it's just, you get a lot of joy out of it. And it's just, look, here lately, some of the, some of the tokens and some of the the things the the older coins that I the nineteen twenty three winged liberty head dime that I just got in the mail yesterday wow you know not and by any stretch imagine not a nineteen sixteen d or anything like that but just love the coin and it was funny because recently I had a conversation with someone who said boy those old dimes it looks like the guy had a wing on his head and I'm going okay here we go you know explain it to you. This is what we have here. So it's just, it's great. I mean, yeah, there's that grumpy old me again here. Yeah, let me explain it to you. But it's just neat to see. You remember the time when you were enlightened as to what that, that coin meant, what that design meant. And these people get enlightened about that too. You know, still carrying around that 1921 Morgan dollar, which was 100 years old when I got it. And picking up that 1923 dime and understanding that it is 100 years old as well. You, yeah. uh, you you beat me to that. I was going to mention that, hey, did you get that because of the centennial or was that just happenstance? It just uh, was a nice looking coin and nice enough for me. And the price was right. And, you know, all the all the factors that check it off and, you know, just having it there and, and kind of looking at it, it. It's really neat. But, you know, with the next year coming up, I mean, 23 wasn't exactly the year when you could get a lot of coins unless you went to other countries. Was this so, another whatnot purchase? Yes. Yeah, it is. I'm, <laughs> I, I will admit to that. Yeah. thought that yes. might have been the case. Yeah. Um, it's, it's to the point now where I get eight or nine notifications a day. So I'm just, I got my favorite sellers. One of them very close to me here and geographically. So it's kind of neat and, you know, got, has what I'm looking for. And I got a good excuse. I'm looking for my father-in-law's collection too. It's not not all for me. So okay. okay, very good. So I will give you a pass on that then since you are looking at the I don't, I don't want to use my pass yet. The trivia question's not here yet. Okay. So okay. I want to save my pass for that one. 
Well, well let's we'll, take another step toward that, though, shall we? We'll do trivia in a bit. But first, I think we need to do a little this week in numismatic history. You know, that's it's always fun to look back and see what happened. And I found something that I think a lot of people will be intrigued by or interested in. And that happened on September 23rd, 1974. Well, what happened that day? That was when Congress and the press explored and examined the Fort Knox Bullion Depository gold supply. There's a famous photo of some dignitaries. I want to say maybe Eva Adams um, or uh, Stella Hackle. That was, I, I don't know, the, the Mint director and and uh, I want to say David Gans was was there at the thing, and it was it was quite a big deal. Uh, that was the I think the last public uh, examination of the gold supply of the nation's gold supply, and that was back in 1974, so 49 years ago. Also, interestingly, that day, September 23rd, was in 1998, was when. President, then President Bill Clinton presented a Congressional Gold Medal to Nelson Mandela. I don't know for sure. I want to say that they should exist, but, you know, bronze duplicates often exist for Congressional Gold Medals. The U.S. Mint generally makes a habit of making them, although in some cases there have been some legal issues with um, copyright and that sort of thing where like I want to say Frank Sinatra received one, but the Mint was never allowed to sell bronze duplicates because the Sinatra estate or something. I, you know, the, don't don't quote me, but I think I think that's how things played out. I wish we had uh, our colleague Paul Jilks here to address that. I, I know it's something he could speak at length about. But anyway, I, I found that interesting. Just September 23rd, 1998, those events happened in in various years. So that's what jumped out to me. A couple of interesting ideas there. I mean, I know that there was some talk at one time internally about trying to see if we could arrange something with Fort Knox. And I think the Mint just laughed at us. But anyway, the idea that, you know, it is secure. It is. It's something I actually have been to Fort Knox a couple of times, never to the depository, mind you, but they're on the base for other reasons. Uh, relatives that have been stationed there and uh, had training there, that type of thing. So impressive uh, facility, no doubt about that. But just the idea that, you know, historically, looking back at that, looking at the the things that have been done, this is always one of my favorite parts. And that's why I was listening, despite the two whatnot notifications that came on my phone. So, <laughs> well, you'll definitely want to listen to the This Week in Coin World history then, because this sort of dovetails nicely with the Fort Knox reference, although this is uh, something to do out west. But um, I, I went to the September 21, 1983 issue of Coin World. 1983 was the year that what is now known as NCBA was founded. And this story. You have to you have to dig a little bit in the issue. It's on page 13. It was not headline, you know, front page news, but I thought it was really interesting, especially in the context of the Fort Knox celebration uh, or mention that we just had. And the headline is Gold Shipment to Denver Draws Attention. Tourists who had scheduled a visit to the Denver Mint on August 27 found their way 
barred by an armed guard at the gate while guards armed with submachine guns could be seen from West Colfax Street patrolling the roof and mint yard. Well, what was happening? In, in this case, Denver police, the FBI, and Secret Service agents all participated in the exercise dubbed Operation Riptide, which involved the shipment of 8,229 bars of gold valued at just under $1.4 billion to the Denver Mint from the San Francisco Assay Office. This operation does not happen without significant security. That included, as the story relates, two U.S. Air Force C-5A transport planes carrying the bullion shipment to the Colorado Air National Guard base at Buckley Field at the eastern edge of Denver, touching down shortly before noon. I'm sure there were other escorts probably for for this as well. Uh, there was a convoy of five semi-trailer trucks and smaller moving van and tow truck and 12 armed 12 cars containing armed planes, clothes, federal agents, two Denver police cars, 23 Denver motorcycle patrolmen. It was an enormous undertaking. And I kind of am saddened to see this story all the way on page 13. I would love to have seen photos of this undertaking. This this had to be enormous. And again, back in 1983, money, $1.4 billion dollars gives thought to the the phrase i don't remember which which late congressperson said it a billion here a billion there pretty soon you're talking real money but <laughs> uh, that was so cool to read about and the mint officials declined to comment on the entire exercise and and this was mint director donna pope released a statement finally after the shipment apparently had been accounted for a couple days later and this was this was done to free more vault space at the San Francisco Assay Office, which, of course, would some point in the 80s, I believe, maybe maybe 90s would turn back into an official mint. But, yeah, that was pretty, pretty cool. Um, and the story relates the Denver Mint has extensive vault facilities for the storage of gold, but still suffers from the notoriety of a hundred thousand dollar gold theft that took place more than 60 years ago. So I think we referenced that uh, in the last month or two on the show. So yeah, this this was just a fun, fun story to tap into. I like the letter that I encountered. It was the last letter. So it seems like this issue pushed a lot of things to the back, but there was a lot of discussion about Olympic coins and that type. But I, I found this letter because 40 years ago, perhaps things were different. I, I don't see this letter as being relevant today to the extent it may have been in 1983. And the letter has a little headline above it that says, Philippines ignored. And I don't really think that uh, collectors ignore the Philippines that much anymore. I think, you know, recently it was involved with the Red Book, and I know the Philippines collectors seem to be more active. But this letter relating to 1983 said, I was gratified to see the article by Samuel Foreman on Philippine coins. I feel this is one area of American coinage that too many collectors ignore. Although proof Philippine coinage of this period is relatively cheap, it is still out of the range of the collector of more modest means. There are several other coins from this era which he can purchase for a few dollars. My own favorite is the sea salvage peso. As with U.S. silver dollars, millions of these dollar-sized coins were kept in vaults as backing for the Filipino paper currency. 
when the Japanese captured Manila in 1941, these coins were taken to Corregidor and uh, still held by the Americans and the then the Filipinos. When Corregidor was about to fall, then over 15 million of these were dumped into the bay to avoid seizure by the Japanese. About two-thirds were salvaged by the end of the year. You can buy one of these historic coins for as little as $8. That was then. Like the chop-marked U.S. trade dollar, they may never appreciate much in value. For the true collector, however, it's a chance to own a piece of history. In addition to the sea salvage coins, the historically minted or minded Philippine collector can acquire Philippine guerrilla currency, run off the presses under the noses of the occupying Japanese. There's also leper colony coinage, to my knowledge, the only coins used by a leper colony, and military tokens and medals, again, for just a few dollars. As far as cataloging Philippine coins, Dr. Foreman was a tad premature. Even a cursory description of Philippine territorial coinage was removed from the latest copy of Yeoman's A Guidebook to United States Coins. So they've since rectified that. I suggest that anyone who desires more information concerning Philippine coinage contact a Philippine coin collector's group. And that was from Richard Slater, Cooley Dam, Washington. Oh, yeah, I just like, I mean, those those are interesting ideas, and it's always a, uh, a stalwart when you're talking about history in the United States and the Philippines and the connection in the 1940s. Absolutely. There's lots of cool stuff, as the, as the letter writer pointed out. So we last time, we did not talk about Philippine stuff. We talked about it before, I believe, but we talked about private and pioneer gold coins uh, and, and issues because of our interview with Don Kagan. So I asked a question last time, who was Augustus Humbert and what is his role or was his role, I should say, in relation to private and pioneer gold? Do you have any idea and what is your answer? Well, I know he was affiliated with the San Francisco assay office. I'm pretty sure about that. I mean, he, in the 1850s, I mean, one of the coins that we have on our coin world trends has to do with the, with Humbert, with the, the 50 and the, he's had the 880s, the 887s. So the Humbert slugs that exist out there. So I believe that, you know, my thought is he was the guy who was the assayer out in, in San Francisco. And so I'm not sure how much more I can go with that one, but that's what I recall about him. So you're you're right on. Uh, he was appointed as U.S. assayer in 1850, responsible for the United States stamp being affixed to the ingots and bars produced under contract to the United States government by Moffat and Company. His name was stamped on the first coins issued the value of $50 in 1851. Now that's um, a little um, biography courtesy of the British Museum, but it all checks. It's all true. And uh, you can find in-depth stuff about him, of course, in the Kagan book and in other resources. So uh, you nailed it. You got it. Good deal. Now I've got another question for you because we're talking with David Crenshaw of the NCBA. Bullion is in the title. I wanted to know what is the first, what is considered the first modern bullion coin, world bullion coin today? Define Uh, modern. Okay. So in your lifetime, let's put it that way. In my lifetime or your lifetime? 
in your lifetime. In my lifetime. Okay. Yes. But see, because it also happens to be in my lifetime. Oh, okay. Good enough. <laughs> but, <laughs> Any angle I could work. <laughs> well, I, I, the, the answer was not in my lifetime. I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away, but. Uh, oh, come on. So, so that's a, that's, it's kind of a gimme, kind of a, it's, it should be an easy one for you and for the listeners. But think about that as you hear from David Crenshaw of the National Coin and Bullion Association right now on. Well, the Coin World Podcast welcomes you once again to share the experience of learning a little bit more about a very important organization that numismatists need to be well aware of here because there's so much that they do that maybe you don't hear about it, but they have made your life a whole lot easier as a collector, as a dealer, whatever the case may be. I'm talking about the National Coin and Bullion Association. It was formerly known as the Industry Council for Tangible Assets. We have with us today... David Crenshaw from the NCBA. David, I'm glad I've been chasing you for two years. I'm glad I finally could catch you. Me too. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Larry and Jeff. Well, we appreciate the time that you spend because you're you're quite a busy person here. But first of all, can you go ahead and just give us the elevator speech to educate those who may not be aware what the NCBA is all about? Absolutely. The National Coin and Bullion Association is the trade name for the Industry Council for Tangible Assets. And we're a tax-exempt trade association dedicated to the numismatic and precious metals uh, bullion communities. Matter of fact, we're celebrating our 40th year this year. Essentially, uh, NCBA exists to uh, promote and safeguard the interests of its members, serving as the industry's watchdog, is like what we like to call ourselves, to maintain a favorable and legislative and regulatory climate in the United States federal government, as well as the individual state governments. We, you know, also the association provides a platform, if you would, through which its members, they can confer with one another, consult and cooperate with and educate governmental and other agencies to solve problems affecting their businesses. NCBA also offers its members assistance and information on new and existing laws and regulations, while again, promoting harmony and cooperation among its members to advance the welfare of the numismatic communities. That's kind of our mission statement in a nutshell, Larry. It's obviously a, a very busy mission, too, because now, you know, when you play word association, sometimes people think the NCBA, if they know anything at all about it here, some of the aspects that you cited there as far as your mission statement goes and one of those is the idea that NCBA and its membership seems to be on the forefront of taking steps to help us ease the tax situation. Is that a fair assessment that that's one of your major purposes? Absolutely. Like you mentioned, you know, NCBA works to prevent laws and regulations that would be excessively burdensome, we like to say, or interfere with our members' abilities or the numismatic community. To, to do business. And one of those driving forces that we've been focused on since our association was formed in 1983 was gaining sales tax exemptions for, for the numismatic community and the precious metal community as well at all 50 states. And currently we have 42 of those 50 states covered and we're working to get those remaining eight states on board with some form of sales tax exemption for their state for our numismatic community. So then this is not basically once one domino falls, the rest of them are gonna fall in line because there's still some outliers here 
what would be some of the major reasons, uh, some of the major resistance you find in trying to present an idea that is, how do we say this, favorable to the constituency? Right. Well, of course, the thing that we're up against when we go into a state, for example, to uh, try to obtain a sales tax exemption is we're confronted with the fact that that most states look at it as a loss, a potential loss or revenue to the state in not collecting a sales income tax, you know, for numismatic sales. We take a little bit different approach. We take the approach where we look at it as uh, an economic benefit where we're going to, you know, increase jobs and economic development for the for the state. Because, of course, with the exemption, you'd hope that more coin businesses would move into the state. In addition, existing coin businesses would hire more people because their business would increase. It's all about economic development. We look at it that it's they're going to essentially find other avenues to get those tax increases because these stores will hire additional people. So there'll be payroll taxes to to, to pay. There'll be new businesses coming in and new uh, business taxes and so forth to pay. And it just puts it more on an even playing field for the numismatic consumer within the state. I think when you talk about this and the economic benefit, one of the first things that comes to mind is the state of Tennessee and the idea that without the legislation that passed to allow this exemption, there wouldn't be a coin show and a bit of the magnitude that we're going to be seeing in November or I'm sorry, in October. Uh, so, you know, it's just the idea that there's a, a big show coming to Nashville in October that in just recent times, that wouldn't be possible because there w- the exemption wasn't there. That's absolutely correct. Well, the state's going to have an economic benefit by bringing business into the state. They're going to have the hotel taxes, the taxes at restaurants are going to collect, and all the money that they're going to spend within the local economy. So it's a very positive effect as far as when you bring in like an economic, when you bring in a big major coin show in an area, it's going to have an economic impact. That's what I was looking for to to the state, a positive economic impact by, by you know, hotel taxes, people, you know, the flights coming in, the taxis, the restaurants, and all those different type of monies that they'll be benefiting from. Yeah, all the forward-thinking locations are always looking for ways to increase their business and put themselves in front of people that may be considering a second location or may be considering relocating their businesses, and this serves as one of the advantages here. Now, one of the things I don't think we think about, and this is where the NCBA really comes into it, is because if a state passes, for example, if a state passes an exemption, that doesn't mean that somewhere somebody else might be trying to undermine that. And so you've got to be more or less a watchdog to keep track, even if one of these 42 states passes their legislation. That means your work may not necessarily be done. Well, that's absolutely correct, Larry. Our our work doesn't stop just because we gain a sales tax exemption within a state. It actually increases because we need to... Uh, monitor those states to make sure that some new legislator particularly may come in and try to eliminate that in order to increase the state revenue. And they just look at all the sales tax exemptions that that state may have on their books at, at any given time and say, 
Well, if we eliminate these exemptions, we're going to be able to increase the income into our, our state coffers, if you would, or the state revenue by X amount of dollars. So that's where a segment of our association we call the Concerned Collectors Coalition, which is made up of collectors and individuals who are in these different states and they kind of like to describe it as they have their thumb on the political pulse, if you would, and monitor their state legislature for any legislation or regulations that may come to, to try to impact not only the numismatic business in general, but also the existing exemption that there might be a repeal. So then, of course, a whole campaign would have to be built around that in order to fight, in order to maintain and keep the repeal if it did come in the form of a new bill being introduced because of that. But you're absolutely and, right, Larry. Yeah. Yeah. There And there's always, I mean, th- again, this is a way of a new legislature wants to get in favor with whether his, her party or the current, you know, the current network that's there. So when you mentioned this Concerned Collectors Coalition, what exactly is that? Well, the Concerned Collectors Coalition is a membership tier within our association that's specifically for individuals whose primary, what we like to say, primary source of income, if you would, isn't generated from the sale of numismatic material. In other words, they're not a dealer specifically. They're they're a member who we can count on that's hopefully politically active in some capacity, and, and that's certainly not a requirement. But they can, all we ask, and by the way, that's a free membership. So we call them the collector base of our numismatic community. And they're welcome to join and become a part of that coalition and help us. And all we ask is that they identify their federal and state legislators as part of the registration process. And essentially, you know, this allows us uh, and our lobbyists on any particular campaign to focus their efforts on legislators whose constituents, if you would, will be directly impacted by any initiatives that we're working on. And it allows us then, of course, they can help us support any efforts that are that are going on. And, and by being able to identify these key legislators, we can essentially focus on them to help sure they have a clear picture of what the issue is and how and how it relates, you know, and how, you know, we can, you know, work together and collaborate to get either the repeal stopped or either get a, a bill introduced to so get a sales I, tax exemption. So I, they become basically the grassroots of this organization is is what it comes down to. And the free membership, absolutely no charge? Absolutely no charge. Matter of fact, they get a a nice little membership certificate. They get our quarterly newsletter being a part of that so they can kind of stay in the loop on everything that's going on within the association. Of course, although the membership's free, you know, we always appreciate having, you know, they can certainly contribute if they like to or donate to the association, but that's certainly not a requirement. Again, we're just looking to have a number of collectors of these concerned collectors within any given state. Currently, I think we have nearly 40 states covered and we're looking at getting, you know, we've been focused kind of on getting uh, collectors, some more concerned collectors in, in the remaining states that we don't have any representation at to kind of keep their pulse on their state legislature for us. You've mentioned state issues. Is is there something that 
collectors need to be wary of or tuned into and that you all stay tapped into at a national level with Congress? Or is that not really something, there's not much happening on that regard? But um, not necessarily. Uh, certainly, you know, if they have uh, connections on Capitol Hill, we certainly want to hear about anything that them, they may become aware of. You know, we do have a full-time staffer. Uh, Jimmy Hayes is our general counsel. He's essentially uh, responsible for monitoring everything that's going on at a federal level. And so we've got the federal or the, you know, Capitol Hill covered pretty well. Uh, with all of his contacts and so forth, of course, being a former congressman to Louisiana, it doesn't hurt. So he's been a valuable asset to our association in being able to help us at the federal level. Now, I don't want to paint the uh, NCBA as a one-trick pony, only thinking about tax exemptions, because there are other a- activities, perhaps maybe not on the collector level, but I think the dealers are actually interested in the efforts that you have as far as like anti-money laundering laws and how those regulations tend to change or, you know, alter. And certainly the dealers don't want to be a foul of that. Absolutely. Like you mentioned, the anti-money laundering, that whole thing came about after 9-11 when Congress passed the U.S. Patriot Act, essentially requires specifically financial services industries, which many of our coin businesses fall under because of, of the amount of cash that they handle, Uh, So they're required by this U.S. Patriot Act to uh, have an AML program, which is an anti-money laundering program set up. And not only must it be a a written program, but they have to implement all all the different policies and procedures in the AML policies. They've got to make sure their employees are trained. And, And we always encourage them, even though it's not a requirement, to have a independent audit of your AML plan program annually is best just to make sure you're currently up on all all the uh, latest uh, regulations. A perfect example of that is that the AML Act of 2020 was passed by Congress, which made several changes to the regulations. And as more often than not, our government has taken a couple of years to actually finalize all what those regulations are. And they've just recently started coming out with the new regulations that we partnered with an AML service provider, Gary Kanas, and he did a seminar for us at the ANA World Ceremony in August to introduce or uh, to start learning how to navigate all these new regulations in the AML Act of 2020 is actually part one because it's not going to be until the end of the year that they actually come out with all the information and all the new regulations concerning that AML Act of 2020 until at the end of this year. So we'll be positioned to continue that discussion at the fund convention in January of next year. So we'll be uh, having a seminar that will encourage all the business owners to attend. And you can find out more about that on our website, ncbassoc.org. As far as the, the time and room number, it will be on that Wednesday, January 3rd, 2024, Larry. All right. Yeah. And that uh, website, by the way, has got a lot of uh, information. You can find out a whole lot more. The educational aspect of the uh, NCBA and how 
members can benefit from that. There's toolkits that are available that they can learn more about the different things that are required and keep themselves out of uh, running into all kinds of trouble here because they don't want to become a target. Certainly, uh, that's the case. But, you know, David, uh, you, you do a lot of work behind the scenes, but there's a lot of individuals. You mentioned Jimmy Hayes, but there are others who contribute a lot of their effort. I mean, even though they're very, very busy at their time, your board of directors, your staff members, uh, your committees and all that. It takes a lot of people to do a lot of work because it's a big country. Absolutely. A person that, frankly, that, that's been a mentor of mine since I've come to work for uh, NCBA 10 years ago is Pat Heller. He's our industry issues advisor, and he's just been a wealth of information as far as when it comes to state sales tax exemptions and their campaigns. Everything that I know and know about that topic and those efforts I've learned from Pat over the years as well as as well as others. But Pat has been my primary mentor and he's just been invaluable. Uh, I jokingly always tell him I wish I could do one of those uh, Vulcan mind mind melds to be able to capture all that information and knowledge base that he has. And like I said, he's just been uh, an invaluable asset to our association. He does a tremendous job in in traveling to these different states for us and testifying before uh, committee hearings on our bills, works very closely with me when we meet with these states, fiscal agencies, and so forth, and trying to educate them on how to correctly calculate a financial note for a bill uh, and so forth like that. So, but yeah, and then of course, the executive committee and all the directors are very, very supportive and helpful. And we just have a, like you said, Larry, a great team overall from our chair, Patrick Perez, right through all of our directors. They just do a tremendous job in supporting me and supporting the association and making sure that we're a driving force, if you would, <laughs> within the numismatic community. What is the best way to find out more information? I know there are occasions where we see you at the major coin shows, but if someone isn't getting to one of those shows, what's the best way to find out how they can make a difference with the NCBA? The the best way, Larry, is is our website. Again, that's ncbassoc.org is the best way to learn about our association we have, you know, just a wealth of information on there. You become a member, you'll get access to even more information because when, when you log on, obviously, depending on your membership tier, you'll have access to a lot of other resources that are available for each of the different member tiers. That's the best way. I'll tell you. You know, we've been speaking with David Crenshaw, the executive director of the National Coin and Bullion Association, celebrating 40 years of providing service for all of us interested in numismatics. And, you know, I got to tell you, you know, if you think money, I can't afford to join this organization, you've certainly given that, kicked that argument to the curb right there with that. So, David, once again, a lot going on, a lot of things happening here. Don't want to hold you up from what you're trying to do for the good of all of us here. So, but we thank you for taking the time and spending the time with us right here today on the Coin World Podcast. Look forward to seeing you again soon, David. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Larry and uh, Jeff. I appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure. And that was our interview with David Crenshaw of the National Coin and Bullion Association. We thank him for taking time to explain the mission and explore ways that the organization is working to serve collectors and uh, dealers.
And also, I mean, it's the fact that there's free membership available to be a part of the Collectors Coalition. I mean, that was uh, enlightening to me to see that, you know, the level of uh, responsibility that we have here will vary. I mean, you don't have to be a lobbyist necessarily to assist the NCBA with what they're trying to do, but certainly be aware and be be thoughtful, be mindful of what it is and the, and the advantages it could have on the, you know, the economic impacts on in your community and in the hobby and all kinds of different ways here. And the, of course, the anti-money laundering law, make sure that we're keeping the keeping everything on the up and up here. So it's just ha- good to have the knowledge. So it's, I'm thankful that David was able to spend some time with us and pass that information along. And of course, if you're interested, check out their their website at NCBASSOC, and as David mentioned, the address there. So, we again, we appreciate the time he spent with us here today. And we appreciate the time that uh, everyone here listening has spent uh, listening to the program for another episode. And uh, we look forward to reconvening in several more days and doing it all over again. Yeah, and they will be curious to find out how much more I've purchased from the online auctions in the meantime. And pretty soon I'll start my own fundraising drive here and, you know, help me buy that next Mercury Dime. So we'll see. Bye. The Larry Jewett GoFundMe. That's it. That's it. Go find me, too. So get off my lawn, kid. Anyway. <laughs> All right. In the meantime. Happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Coin World Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about Coin World Plus at coinworldplus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.